Morning. No time to uh, say anything funny because my son and niece took up all their all the time saying what cool things they did this weekend. So, to which Denny Lobb would then say, "You're uh, this is different than what now? You're you're not being funny. This is categorically different than any other time." Something like that. He heckled me. Okay. Uh, we spent some time last week discussing various aspects of. Is this? Uh, of the development of the doctrine uh, and what positions were affirmed and not affirmed historically. What we will do today is understand on a high level uh, <clears throat> the different theological positions uh, on some key elements of the doctrine of original sin, namely, what is the breadth and the depth of the consequences of fall on humanity with regard to our standing before God and our, uh, the condition of our natures. And we will be dealing with two components primarily as a thematic way to talk about that, which is corruption and guilt. Uh, how and to what extent are we affected with regard to Adam's rebellion? Christian theologians throughout the history of the church have wrestled with how to exactly formulate the doctrine of original sin. Original sin involves corruption or pollution, as it were, but does original sin also entail original guilt? If guilt is included, as well as corruption, then what are we exactly guilty for? Adam's own action of sin or, um, or our own state of corruption? And how do we account for the guilt of someone else's act of sin being applied or accredited to us? This is the question of alien guilt. Scholar Stanley Grintz asks, quote, for what are we guilty, our own individual sins or also the sin of Adam? Do we begin life both sinful and guilty? Are we both depraved and condemned? Does hell await the children of Adam because of the sin he committed or only because of the sins that we commit, close quote. So keep in mind that there have been no firm statements agreed upon or endorsed by ecumenical councils, and on several important points, there has never been anything approaching a theological consensus, although on other points there have been consensus. So given this, there are several options that have developed um, and been refined, and we're essentially going to talk about those with that theme of corruption and guilt real quickly. Just for clarification now, <clears throat> When we are talking about corruption, we're talking about, essentially, with regard to the human nature, uh, something that is polluted, diseased, tarnished, damaged. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little while. And when we talk about guilt, we're really talking about the fact of having committed a specific or implied offense. Adam commits a moral crime against God and was found guilty. I just wanted to sort of define those two terms a little more clearly as we move into the rest of this. Okay, so the first theological option is called federalism, <clears throat> and this implies both corruption and guilt. According to Romans 5, 12, 21, the advocates of this view uh, say that Adam functioned as our federal or representative head. We are uh, not, they say, somehow really present in and with Adam. That's realism. We're going to talk about that in a second. But Instead, Adam functions for us as, um, on our behalf as a, as a public person or representative. Michael Scott Horton, a con 
uh, temporary reform scholar, says, quote, Adam's covenantal role entailed that he was the representative for his whole posterity, close quote. In fact, every person is judged guilty in Adam, and the, um, and the effects of this curse extend even to the rest of creation. Similarly, Millard Erickson <clears throat> says when he discusses federalism, quote, Adam was on probation for us all, as it were, and because Adam sinned, all of us are treated as guilty and corrupted. Bound by the covenant between God and Adam, we are treated as if we actually and personally um, did what he as our representative did. So according to federalism, we are condemned because Adam stood in for us as a representative for the whole human race due to his relationship to us as our legal head or our legally appointed representative. His guilt thus counts as ours. The federalist position argues from the language of condemnation and justification in that Romans 5 passage that we read last week, uh, 5, 12 through 21. Here they say we see the legal language that is characteristic of representation. We are not really in Christ, or uh, we are represented by Christ. By a parallel uh, the, the suggestion, the passage itself then, we should conclude that we are legally and, or politically represented by Adam um, as the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us in a legal sense, so also the sin of Adam is imputed to us in a legal sense. Our justification comes by way of imputation of our sins to Christ and then Christ's righteousness to us, directly parallel, they would argue, is the imputation of Adam's sin to us. The most serious roadblock <clears throat> for this position has been posited by a number of scholars is the upfront case made in Scripture that the guilt of one person is not transferred to another. For instance, we would read in Deuteronomy, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Or Jeremiah, I don't have it here, I gotta read it. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. And the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. All of that, chapter 18, is basically a commentary on all that. This just happens to be the linchpin piece. Now, the realist view, which we're going to talk about in a second, at least tries to deal with this uh, process or the problem of alien guilt. Um, and then that, that's a reaction to the, to the known problem that this one purports. The concern that critics have here is that the federal's position simply cannot account for the apparent miscarriage of justice that it proposes. According to federalism, every person is judged guilty and we should take care to not misunderstand what this means. Anthony Huckamama admits, quote, probably the greatest difficulty with this view is that it seems to suggest that God imputes to us the guilt of a sin that we did not commit. 
This is the problem of alien guilt. Harry Blocker, Reformed theologian, no less, in his book, Original Sin, says, quote, imputation of alien guilt strains the sense of justice in most readers, close quote. And since no doctrine of sin can even begin to make moral or biblical sense without an adequate concept of moral responsibility, the criticism of federalism with regard to alien guilt should be taken seriously. The view considered the most prominent alternative to the federalist position is what is termed as the realist view or realism. Realists posit that there is a sense in which we are all one, that is, really one, rather than just viewed as his legal representative with Adam. Scholar Oliver Crisp explains it in, uh, in this way, quote, Adam's progeny were somehow really present with Adam at the point of his first sin. Close quote. Augustine says, For we all are, so, pardon me, for we were all in that one man, since we all were that one man who fell into sin. For not yet was the particular form created and distributed to us in which we as individuals were to live, but already in the seminal nature there was from which we were to be propagated, and this being vitiated by sin and bound by the chain of death and justly condemned, man could not be born of man in any other state. Note that Augustine makes the claim here, we all were that one man. He's not merely saying that we were represented by that one man, as in federalism. No, he, we were just that one man in some sense. Augustine is representative of this view, but he's not uh, the only one. Uh, perhaps the most famous a proponent of realism aside from Augustine was Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards said, God in every step of his proceeding with Adam in relation to the covenant or constitution established with him looked on his posterity as being one with him. And though he dealt more immediately with Adam, yet it was as the head of the whole body and the root of the whole tree in his proceedings with him, he dealt with all the branches as if they had been existing in their root. Thus, both guilt and exposedness to punishment and also depravity of heart came upon Adam's posterity just as they came upon him, as much as if he and they had all coexisted like a tree with many branches. I think this will naturally follow on the supposition of there being a constituted oneness or identity of Adam and his posterity in this affair. So realism attempts to avoid the criticism of federalism, this alien guilt issue, uh, by claiming a real unity with Adam and his act of sin. But realism also has its share of critics. These critics are quick to point out that Augustine misunderstood <clears throat> the important phrase in Romans 5.12 Augustine's Latin text mistranslated the phrase that is now standard issue in most translations as because all sin. The Latin translation he used rendered that phrase in whom. So instead of stating that the death came to all because all sin, Augustine understood this to say death came to all by the one man in whom all sinned. Proponents admit that, uh, this mistake, but they claim that it 
it doesn't destroy their position. And this may be true, but it certainly renders this scripture null for a proof text. Additionally, there are significant theological concerns with the implications of realism. A clear understanding of imputation pulls us away from realism. Christ's work on our behalf was his work alone. We can say that we received his righteousness as if we received, uh, as ourselves have accomplished the obedience he accomplished, but we are not the people who personally and physically sacrificed God's righteousness with Christ. We didn't participate with Christ in his work. So that you can see that <clears throat> we wouldn't we wouldn't hold to a concept of realism with regard to justification. Um, we would certainly want to be cautious with regard to original sin in applying this. Other critics, uh, or some of the same critics, would say, <clears throat> well, why not, if we're one with Adam with regard to sin, why not be accountable for all the sins of our ancestors um, as well as Adam? And then uh, a similar critic, uh, critique that's related to that, essentially this means it diminishes the moral responsibility of human persons as distinct agents. Human beings are more than genetic participants in a race and we're more than branches on a tree. Many reform, uh, reform theologians see an attraction to combining elements of realism and federalism to formulate a more nuanced version. According to the immediate view, we are guilty for original sin as, uh, as well as actual and personal sins. We are not merely corrupt, we are actually guilty. However, we are not, strictly speaking, guilty for what Adam did. We do not bear the personal guilt for the personal sins of Adam and Eve. The term mediate here is used to distinguish the view from immediate. Immediate view says that we are directly or immediately accountable for Adam's sin, the realist and the federalist position that, like we just discussed. The immediate view says that we are indirectly or immediately accountable. But on both these views, our own corruption is a consequence of Adam's sin and something for which we are guilty. Thus, either way, we bear guilt for something Adam did. Many scholars tend to associate Calvin with this mediate or indirect view. Calvin defines original sin as, quote, a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature extending to all parts of the soul, which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God and then produces in us works in which scripture are termed works of flesh. Calvin did not argue for immediate guilt, but he does essentially posit Adam sinned, therefore all are depraved, therefore all are guilty. Erickson holds uh, this view with a slight twist. Uh, his position is that we suffer from original guilt, but only um, a conditional guilt until it is ratified by us. He says, we are all involved in Adam's sin and thus receive both the corrupt, corrupted nature that was his after the fall and the guilt and the condemnation that attached to his sin. With the matter of guilt, however, just as with the imputation of Christ's righteousness, there must be some conscious or voluntary decision on our part. Until this is the case, there is only a conditional imputation of guilt. Thus, there is no condemnation before one reaches the age of 
responsibility. That quote's not in the abridged version of the doctrine that you have. It's in the bigger one. <clears throat> Our final option is the uh, affirmation of corruption in original sin without the corresponding uh, affirmation of guilt. Uh, this view was uh, the view of early pre-Augustinian Christian theology. We talked a little bit about that last week. Scholar J.N.D. Kelly says that although Athanasius saw a strong connection between Adam and all humanity and indeed held that, quote, sin had passed to all me, he, quote, never hints that we participate in Adam's actual guilt. And if you recall last week, we did discuss the alternative understandings of many early church fathers. For instance, the Greek fathers' uh, theology generally held that man's, this is another quote from uh, Kelly, quote, man's mortality, his subjection to pain and sickness, his ignorance, his weakness of will and enslavement to desire, his idolatry in religion and violence and poverty and slavery in the social sphere, quote, are all direct results of the fall. Nonetheless, he says, quote, there is hardly a hint in the Greek fathers that mankind as a whole share in Adam's guilt or rather his culpability. Pre-Augustinian fathers, if you remember, also saw humans as guilty for their own sins. Ambrose, a church father who converted and actually baptized Augustine, held sin as a, quote, corrupting force, was transmitted to, uh, transmitted to all of humanity, but that the guilt for Adam's sin, quote, attaches to Adam himself and not to us, close quote. Proponents of the corruption-only view are often drawn to it because they find the evidence for universal devastating corruption to be blatantly obvious, both in their own per our own personal experience and with Scripture. Um, so on the one hand, they find evidence for the corruption everywhere. It's all too, it's all too obvious. The effects of um, corruption are devastating and far-reaching. Uh, corruption impacts the intellect. It perverts the will. It leaves us in enmity with God and total uh, of the totality of who we are as individual persons and communities and societies. But on the other hand, proponents do not find such evidence of original guilt, or as I've mentioned, alien guilt, being guilty of someone else's sin and being punished for it. They argue that the doctrine of original guilt utterly is contrary to true justice. Sometimes they argue from a broad sense of justice, but sometimes they argue directly from Scripture itself, like the, um, the Jeremiah, the Ezekiel Scriptures that we just referenced. So they conclude that not only do we not need to believe in original guilt, since it isn't demanded by Scripture, we should refrain from the affirmation of original guilt. Now, this position should not be misunderstood. Proponents of corruption only view insist that we are, of course, guilty of sin. But we are guilty of the sins that we commit. We're not guilty of the, something that our first parents did. We obtain a kind of hereditary corruption from, uh, from them, not unlike how you would uh, a purely physical defect would be inherited, potentially. And we are guilty for sin as a matter of fact. But the sin for which we are guilty is our own. We are guilty for the sins we commit. We are guilty for only the sins that we commit. And while we suffer the results of Adam's sin through corruption, our condition is that we are bent towards sin so that we will inevitably sin. 
It is our own sin for which we are guilty. <clears throat> One of the fundamental doctrinal positions included in the discussion of sin is that the Bible and simple personal observation like we just discussed demonstrates that we're all sinners and that none of us are able to purify or justify ourselves. The property of being sinful is a common human property, but it is not an essential human property. Okay, let me explain. Being sinful is a property that is shared by the vast majority of humans. And indeed, only one human person is exempt from it. Jesus Christ is like us in every respect, yet without sin, Hebrews 4 tells us. But the fact that Jesus Christ is fully human, yet without sin, speaks volumes about the proper understanding of what it means to be human. He is fully human, yet without sin, so genuine, authentic human nature does not include the properties associated with sinfulness. Um, I'll give you a scenario. Imagine that there's a town where everyone has a fatal disease. <clears throat> and uh, the nurses and the doctors have, uh, um, the, also have the disease, and they're trying to do their best to cure everyone. Another nurse comes in from out of that town who does not have the disease. We would not say that this nurse who does not have the disease is not fully human, or the condition of her being human would be that she'd have to have the disease. So when we talk about um, essential properties, we're talking about something by, that by definition entails the, the definition of being human. Yet it seems like um, there's something like this in our work, and uh, our understanding in evangelicals and human sin. It seems that many evangelicals speak as though we possess a, quote, sin nature, as though sin is actually essential to being human. But clearly this cannot be true, for we know this from Adam and Eve, and more importantly, we know it from Jesus Christ, our true and perfect example of what it means to be human. Because we all suffer from sin, we easily can conclude that it must be, quote, what it means to be human. So we sin. Well, so what? After all, we're only human. But we know our studies in Christology put a very different light on this. If being sinful is essential to being human, then Christ is either a sinner or not really human. And we know that, that both those statements to be heretical. What Christ reveals to us in the Incarnation, however, is that being sinful is not essential to human nature. He was fully and completely human, yet without sin. Sin is not essential to being human. It is a perversion of our humanity. To be clear, we're all sinners, and we all stand guilty. But it's important as you work out a biblical position on how sin affects our nature that you be careful um, to avoid or carefully use, in my opinion, the term sin nature because it may mean or imply something more than you think it does. <clears throat> you must work out what it means to have a fallen nature, take into consideration that it doesn't affect the nature of a human being, it affects the functioning nature of a human being. Did the fall change our nature or our standing before God? Consider Adam and Eve before and after the fall as an example. Well, I've said enough on this, 
to, for some hope that you'll look into it, find it interesting or perplexing or both, but uh, it's an, an important side uh, as we move forward. Okay, so now we need to finish up with some considerations on the components and discrete positions within the doctrine of original sin uh, that require common agreement and which ones are speculative to a degree. First, there are, there are certain um, positions within all of these views and their variants that we most certainly need to affirm, and we do in this church. But there are also some associated with these views that are, uh, views that are disputable. Start with the essentials. Because of Adam's fall, all became sinners and stand under God's righteous judgment. Now, there's a little, within this one, there's some room for discussion, but we affirm this. Two, each and every human being has sinned. Thus, we are all accountable for our own sins before a holy and just God. And three, as a result of the fall of the race into sin, human beings must be born again to new life in Christ. They can be pardoned and redeemed by faith in Christ alone. These three statements really are taken from uh, Evangelical Affirmations, which is a document we have on our website uh, that you can reference. Now, here are the disputable ones, and I think those become clear since we've talked about them for the last couple of, uh, last couple of sermons here. Alien guilt. Are we held accountable for Adam's sin, our sin only, or a combination of both? And if we are held accountable for Adam's sin, what mechanism or method is, uh, is, is work in terms of our inheritance or imputation? How are we corrupted by Adam's sin? We just had a little introductory discussion just a second ago about what, it, what human nature is, but how is it that we are corrupted? What is the mechanism? Or the famous line here, which is, do we sin because we are sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? Those are radically different statements and kind of fun to chew on. Those, are, If you had anything to write down on it, this is the one I would write, write down and, and think about. Uh, there are uh, different movements, uh, traditions within um, the church that hold one or the other of these. <clears throat> so that was... First, a historical overview of uh, the development of the doctrine, and then some uh, a real fast overview and a high-level overview of the kinds of positions that uh, theologians and scholars have tried to work out to make sense of both corruption and guilt. Uh, I found it a fascinating study for myself. I'm hoping that this will spur you on to think about it, um, to sort of consider what you viewed before. I, I traditionally, I mean, I would say a year ago, I held to a, an Augustinian understanding of, uh, of original sin. And now I'm more confident that uh, I've worked out some of these details and I can hold a couple of those things in tension as I continue to work that out. My hope is that I hope that you do that with, you, with your own theological system and you work, wrestle with that yourself. And then just as importantly, that you know that 
your position about this also says something about who the God is, what he's done, his character, and so that we can help each other grow stronger and also be good um, witnesses for an unbelieving world. Okay? Uh, yeah, that's why I didn't really want to talk about it. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the discussion of the sin nature, the, okay, the discussion of human nature and sin nature that we just talked about. Uh, Mr. Birch uh, said that he was maybe a little concerned at that discussion that I uh, just did would not be very clear with regard to that. But Pelagian, we did talk about it a little bit yes, uh, last week. Um, but essentially, he uh, he believed that um, um, that God had uh, that people were built sort of like with a blank slate. Is that is that what you would say that they 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 uh, sin by imitation? Um, but they are not born um, uh, sinners. No, there's no yeah, there's no corruption. Yeah. Well, why don't you just get up here and say it? Then? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's okay. Well, I mean, I we ruled him. I I tried to rule him out when I said he was condemned, <clears throat> and so um, last week. So, <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. There are still those elements, and then yeah, Josh was concerned that that my my presentation on the sin nature would cause some people some confusion about his guy saying that we aren't sinners, and so I tried to emphasize the fact that we are sinners, that we are bent, we are we are fallen, um, our nature is broken, and so that we will inevitably sin. But, but, there, uh, but this idea of alien guilt is a debatable, dis disputable issue. The heresy is still alive. Yes. It's very much alive. It's found in evangelical Yeah, well, we talked about that last week where we said sin is, the, the doctrine of original sin is an embarrassment to a lot of people. And also it's very complex and difficult to understand. I mean, there, these theories that you just saw here are, um, if they seem a little hard to get your hands on, there are guys that have studied it for a long time, and it's still kind of hard to get your hands on. I mean, talk about being with uh, in in him in Adam as he sins is a very interesting and kind of a you know a hard to grasp concept. Okay, let's stand and I'll close. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed to love each other. <laughs>